with your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to from the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Season's greetings. I hope everyone is getting ready for the holidays across our great country and stoking the fires, melting the marshmallows, decorating the trees, lighting the menorahs, and getting the peppermint mochas that you love from your favorite baristas or whatever tickles your holiday fancy. I hope you are warming up And I do mean that literally, as it is cold in some places across this great land. And we are so pleased that you are listening to our new show. We are getting ready for the Christmas holidays here as we celebrate that Christian holiday. And we will discuss that holiday today on this show, among some other great topics, such as a jazz singing legend. And we will talk about a great Christmas movie that you may or may not be aware of, a comedy. And this is not just a holiday show per se, but we have some fun and some interesting holiday show topics as the season is here. And we will begin celebrating today. So no boring stuff today. It's all holiday cheer or fun or something interesting. Well, anyway, in our poli sci for the normal guy feature, we will be talking about polling, how it's done, why it's done, and when it is to be believed. And we will highlight another great American hero who was a legend of jazz, yet she was not known for playing an instrument. But she may have possessed the best jazz instrument in history, (gasps) interestingly enough, which helped her make records over seven different decades. Stay with us to find out who we are honoring. And we will look into the religious part of the Christmas holidays, as I alluded to earlier. Is it going away in America? Is it already gone? Is it under attack? Or is there anything there to begin with? In our regular segment, This Ladies Could Be Hades, we will talk about Christmas. Christmas. Just don't take this to the dinner table with your relatives during the holidays. And we will break down President Biden's age. What this means for our election. In our returning feature, what is the confection in our election? And finally, our returning two closing segments that we introduced last week. First, we break down that Christmas movie I talked about earlier that you may not be familiar with. You may not remember it. It's from the 80s, and we will talk about it in a few moments. And in our feature, Movies That Protect Us From Political Correctness. And to close out our show, we have one inspiring quote or one big fat political joke today. This is a really good one from President Reagan, as well as an interesting one where we tweak the night before Christmas. Stay with us for that. And we are just getting started.
Can you believe a poll that you find on the net or on TV or in the newspaper? At first, I usually don't. Sadly, I will explain the why in this next article that I call Poli Sci for the Normal Guy, where we are talking polling. But first, what is a poll? Let's look at the background. I have a BA in political science. I did several computer studies on polling where we participated in practice runs, basically of running our own campaign, where we had our own budgets, staffs, costs. We had our own candidate. We had to bolster and we had to run polls too. We had to run our own internal polls and we had to look at outside polls. And also I had to write a thesis paper where I had to run my own poll, where I had to compare a city's thoughts, city's population's thoughts versus a university student's thoughts. And I had to write a paper that was about 150 pages long and included a sampling of polls from both places and compare the results to each other. So I have a strong background in understanding and deciphering polling. So back to it. What is a poll? It is a sampling of the final collection of opinions on a subject, campaign person, taken from either a selected group or a random group, dependent upon the selected analysis needed. Ah. So if I want to know, as an example, if Donald Trump will win the presidential primary here in Texas, I cannot just drive down my road out here <laughs> and ask people, hey, do you think Donald Trump's going to win? My entire road may think he's going to win, or my entire road may think he's going to lose. That is not scientific. I will not get the answer that I seek. <laughs> I must decide how I can get both a fair and correct sampling of people. The best samples are anonymous. In other words, I do not want to select certain people and make it subjective. I want to make it as no. unsubjective as possible. I need a random polling. The only time that will change is if I want to know, for example, what women in Texas feel about an abortion law. So I will select women out of that poll, but I will still select them anonymously. I don't want to know what certain women feel in that poll. <sighs> or if I want to know how minorities feel about Joe Biden as president. I want to select minorities to know what those minorities feel. If let's say I'm going to find out if Dean Phillips has a chance to win in Minnesota, for example, I want to know how minorities feel in Minnesota to see if they have a chance to pull him over the edge to beat Joe Biden. Ooh. I would select only minorities in that poll in that state. There is still a random sampling necessitated, but you would only want to sample that particular group in that particular area. So when you poll, you want to ensure it is accurate. <laughs> and that is what's not been happening as much as it should. I don't have the time in this podcast to explain exactly how everything works about polling. It's very scientific. To make it perfect, it it takes a lot, but I'm going to get into some of this stuff that goes into it. So why did we get the polls so wrong and so inaccurate when Hillary Clinton lost in 2016? How did I get them correct? I don't know how many of you have heard the other podcast, but I went on Facebook two weeks before the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and I predicted the election almost exactly. I only missed two states. So how is it possible that I got it right and most of the political scientists and politicians and news media got it wrong in this country? It's because when I look at polls, I don't look at them the way they do. I don't read into them the way they do. So if I'm looking at a left 
wing leaning pole or a right wing leaning pole. I'm not going to take those seriously. I, I might track them to see like trends, but I'm not going to look at the actual numbers. I don't even pay attention to them. Sometimes they are paid for just to cheer on the base. <laughs> if all the polls say that Trump will win, what makes you want to go and get up and vote for Biden? So you got to have some polls that say Biden will win so that you'll go out and vote for him. <laughs> the other reason they pay for it is to see trends, like I'm saying. And it's also to see if their candidate's getting a certain amount of this kind of base or a certain amount of this kind of demographic or a certain amount of people supporting them in this area or that kind of thing. Another aspect I look at of polling is the margin of error in each poll. Each poll will have what is called a margin of error in which the poll could be wrong. It's a plus or minus two to five points usually in most polls, but the sampling changes that. And the bigger the error, the more it's likely to be wrong. Zoe. And the larger the sample, the smaller the error. When I see polls with big errors, I tend not to believe them at all. I write them off. They, to me, are not very scientific. They're trying to pull something, in my opinion. They will just barely fall into what I qualify as a scientific poll. If I see one with a very small margin of error, especially below 2%, I will be much more likely to believe that kind of poll. So you see a poll where they sample two or 3,000 people or 6,000 people or something like that. You're gonna find a lot more accuracy in that, but you see a lot of polls these days where they only sample four or 500 people. Out of a country of 311 million, you're trying to tell me that you can get accuracy sampling 400 people? I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Thirdly, you must try to poll evenly and fairly, but you usually can't do that. Then what you do is you have to try to make it even or correct, or you have to try to make it match what you're going to see in the election. Republicans are notoriously more difficult to sample than Democrats. And right there, you can't get an even and accurate poll. It just isn't possible. It's just a fact. Independence can be tough, too. It is a cultural thing in some cases. It can be a who answers the phone type of thing. Generally, but not always, people who back a candidate are much more likely to want to talk to pollsters. So if I love Donald Trump, I want to tell that pollster, ooh, let me talk about Donald Trump. I love him. I want to talk about him. But if I love Biden or I like Biden or maybe I'm really not that excited about Biden, but I want to vote for him. I may not answer the phone, but I still might like him. I still might be planning to vote for him. This is where it can get sketchy with polls. If you're polling and you know that a bunch of, let's say, Biden supporters are in a certain area and you're polling for Dean Phillips, perhaps you just don't call that area. And that way you can unscientifically sway your poll, even though you say you are doing it scientifically. I will go as far as to say that I believe some pollsters have attempted to sway their polls so that they can sway voters. It really isn't that hard to do if that is what you want to do. I'm just going to tell you as a matter of fact. And I look into a lot of those pollsters and I look into a lot of who's doing the polling and the science behind it and all that. And I throw those out. <laughs> and that's why I was able to be right. Now, I was wrong about the 2020 election, and I'll get to that in a moment. Yet another thing I look at is sample size. And when the poll was taken, as I alluded to earlier, the larger the sample, the more likely it is to be accurate. But it can get more technical than that. If I look at three polls and they all say Nikki Haley is catching Trump, <laughs> she was 50 points behind. 
However, digging in, one now says she's 40 points behind. One says she's 20 points behind. The third says she's 10 points behind. I look at the factors that we discussed a few moments ago. Looking at the first one that says she's 40 points behind, the sample taken was only 400 people taken on weekdays before 5 p.m. They sampled about half men, half women. When we do this, most people work during the day. This means you could largely be sampling unemployed people, disabled people, young adults, senior citizen, which will skew your poll, perhaps in a big way. Ah! Also, a small 400-person sample is just simply not big enough for me, as I said. The next poll at 20 points behind was taken over a two-week period before 7 p.m. and on weekends. You may still be skewing your poll some, as people could be working and working after 7 p.m. and late getting home, but you are still getting a much better sample. And they polled 800 people this time. And they sampled about 60% men, though. Aha! Yet another problem. <laughs> this obviously could skew support to Trump for men who support him more. Yes. I am not sure why they did not even try to even out this poll as it's weighted too much for men. Pollsters sometimes do this with Democrats who are more willing to answer and you see polls with more Democrats and then they wonder why their polls are wrong. <laughs> Finally, the last poll shows 2,000 people polled, half men, half women, polled till 9 p.m. at night. This is probably the most accurate poll of all and this is the one I tend to believe. And I'll just kind of glance at the others and believe this one the most. Believe it or not, you can look at how they took the poll by phone, computer, in person, or otherwise, and you can get your answers. Firstly on this, looking at phones, did they call a landline or a cell phone? Did they call a satellite phone or some kind of other weird phone uh, set up through the internet or something? How did they contact by computer? Did they verify who they contacted? Did they contact in person or how did the interactions take place? Do they even know where they are talking to the person? If it's a blended poll, how did they do it? <laughs> I can tear some of this completely apart because how do you know who or what you are talking to if you're talking to them by computer? If you do in-person contact, that is standing out in the street, just taking a poll by people who are passing by, did they try to persuade the person they're talking to as they're polling them. This is the biggest issue of doing this type of polling. And I look at the pollsters who think the election will go, how it will go, and they try to weight polls. And this is a big thing and a more modern thing to do. So I'll give you the example of this. You have a poll where you think more Democrats are going to vote in this election than Republicans. You just think this because you are looking at the signs and you think this is what's going to happen. So you wait the poll with more Democrats voting. Well, surprise, surprise, on election day, you're wrong. <laughs> more Republicans show up. That's why your poll is wrong. That's what makes you look stupid. And this is what happens with pollsters trying to figure out what they think the electorate is going to be rather than looking at the raw data in the poll. Yeah! This is where it gets tricky and technical, but a pollster will actually change their results intentionally because they think they undersampled women, undersampled men, undersampled minority, or oversampled them. Frankly, this is when they miss it badly. I think sometimes you can learn more from raw data in a poll than you can from your best educated guess. So when I saw polling before that 2016 election, I would open up the poll and dig into the raw data. 
and that's how I would get some of the answers because I was seeing that they were under polling Republicans, that they were missing a lot of Republicans, that Republicans were not answering a lot of the polls, and that they were simply ignoring that fact. I would rather know how they are answering the questions too, so I look at that. And speaking of which, how are they asking the questions? Now I will intentionally inflate the difference in my questions just so you can see how a pollster can do that. I may ask, so in the next presidential election, would you vote for Donald Trump or President Biden? In the same straightforward way. Or I could ask it this way. Would you actually vote for four-time indicted former President Donald Trump or our aged current President Joe Biden? That's, I guess, somewhat fair. Or I could say, would you vote for four-time indicted former President Donald Trump or our kindly aged current President Joe Biden? Now, what are you going to say? <laughs> now, it won't be that crazy in all polls, but you can just use a tone of voice to ask the question. You can just insinuate things about a person as you're asking the poll. You can insinuate if someone's too old or do you think Joe Biden is really too old to be president? You can ask all sorts of things. This won't sway everyone, especially those with their minds made up, but it will sway some. And it just takes a few points here or there to make a poll or it may cause some not to answer at all. Another way to interpret polls is to look at the way they took the polls. So if I look at polls of Texas to see who will win here, and I see that the poll was taken by the Dallas Morning News, the Houston Chronicle, the Austin American Statesman, I am more apt to believe that poll than if I saw a poll taken by, let's say, the New York Times. <sighs> I also look at the samples they took and the other criteria. But there's boots on the ground that matter, people that live here that look around here that see the area that matter. There is a saying in politics, all politics are local or all politics evolve from the grassroots. So let's say that the Dallas Morning News and the New York Times both take a poll about the governor's race in Texas with Governor Abbott running against a Democratic challenger. Let's say the Dallas Morning News poll shows the Democratic challenger losing to the governor by five points, but the Democratic challenger is up by three in the New York Times poll. How is that even possible when there's a margin of error in both polls of only three points? That is where I dig deeper. Oh. <laughs> the Dallas Morning News poll did their poll through 9 p.m. at night, understanding the traffic problems that we have here in Texas and all the major metro areas and people getting home or people being able to answer their cell phone while they're driving in traffic. The New York Times poll did their polling mostly during the day, thus skewing the polling to those people who are at home. <laughs> The New York Times poll says they believe the electorate on Election Day will show a strong Hispanic showing as well. And they skew their polling towards that demographic. And they also believe the Hispanics will support Democrats. So they skew their poll that way. However, the Dallas Morning News poll shows the same strong showing coming from Hispanics. But their raw data believes that Hispanics will overwhelmingly support Governor Abbott. When Election Day comes... Governor Abbott wins by 8%. Ooh. Why were they both somewhat wrong? Because both undersampled Republicans and both underestimated the support for Governor Abbott from Hispanics. <gasps> this is how polls continually miss the mark. They misguess the electorate. They misguess what is happening in the real world. And they don't even understand their raw data. <laughs> And this is what happened in some of the recent elections. Off-year elections are really hard to read. You'll have 
strange elections in different states, you'll have different things happening. And these are really hard to figure out. Turnout is really hard to poll. And this is what just happened a few weeks ago. Democrats generally fared well in these elections. The polls, though, thought Republicans would do well. And why were they wrong? The abortion issue was a much bigger issue than many predicted. That is, except for me, which I did so on this program just a few weeks ago when I told you it was going to be a big issue. (laughs) Because of the Supreme Court ruling, people who were pro-choice turned out to vote big time. Many pro-lifers have become complacent due to that Supreme Court decision. Those in the pro-choice group, though, have become more motivated to vote. I do not believe all polls are manipulated, nor do I believe that there's some nefarious thing with polling necessarily. I just see mistakes rather than some kind of conspiracy. Although I do believe there is some manipulation of polling going on in some places. I see a world where we have gone off the deep end with our universities pushing more manipulated polling methods rather than learning from the raw data. I see where we are so smart, we're stupid (laughs) in some cases. This is how I read through the polls and this is how I called it for Trump. I missed the 2020 election only by three states. I called it for Trump in a close election, but I missed it in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and I was close in all of those. I called one of those. I said I missed it by three states, but one of those I had as a toss-up, and I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. And I had President Trump winning in a very close race as a guess. Those states all ended up being about a 1% or less difference. It was less than 150,000 votes combined in all of those states. Now, one of the reasons I was wrong is that generally when you look at undecideds, they break anywhere from 60 to 80 percent for the challenger if they wait up until Election Day to make up their minds. And this is what happened here. But weirdly enough, not in every state. (laughs) This is what could have made the election results look unusual to some political scientists. But I am excited to see that so many people voted in this election, too, which is also what threw basically the results and the polling and some of it off. Trump received more votes in this election, the 2020 election, than he did in the 2016 election, which is weird, but true. And when you consider that he was unpopular with parts of Republican base, that's where I see he lost. The first rule for an incumbent is to shore up your base. And he didn't do it. And a lot of it had to do with his mouth, as I alluded to in last week's podcast. Anyway, this is a little bit on polling. I could get even more technical, very scientific, and really make these pollsters look like idiots, frankly. But I will perhaps save some of that for later. You have enough information to start looking at polling a lot more critically. With every bit of political info you get, especially on social media, don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Check it. Mm -hmm. Think Mm -hmm. about it. Reason it out. If it sounds stupid, it probably is. Coming up in the next segment, we will remember two important Americans who we lost recently in the political world. How did they help shape America? And we will discuss a truly great American hero, a woman who is a uniter using her music as a way of showing women how to move forward, as well as having one of the most beautiful women ever, Marilyn Monroe, help her break down racial prejudice to help move her career forward. Stay with us to hear this very unusual story.
We have lost many great Americans this year, but it has just so happened that several have been lost in just the last month or so, especially with the losses of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and the great Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And we remember them briefly now and their importance to our country. Former Secretary Henry Kissinger was born in 1923 and died on November 29th of this year, the last surviving member of the Richard Nixon cabinet. He escaped Nazi Germany as a Jewish survivor in his teens with his family and made it to the U.S. where he served in the U.S. Army. In the Army, they began to realize what an asset his mind really was and placed him in Army intelligence. He did go on, though, to have combat duty and helped free a concentration camp during World War II, a turnabout for him. He was quickly promoted up the ranks to counterintelligence, helping round up Gestapo agents in Germany. From the military, he went on to Harvard. At Harvard, he excelled and became a professor of government there. He eventually became so well-respected that he began to advise the U.S. government and he began to get notice from some top government officials. He served as national security advisor to President Nixon and Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations from 1969 to 1977. He is best known for helping open the door for trade with China. This is one of the greatest achievements of Richard Nixon's administration, one of the great achievements of the 20th century. Yes. He also aided in discussions of and practically negotiating the peace treaty for leading to the end of the Vietnam War. In fact, he almost did it himself because there was so much back and forth that went on with negotiating this treaty. And he pushed the policy known as detente with the Soviet Union, which began the cooling of relations between America and the Soviet Union, which eventually led to Reagan's relationship with Gorbachev. All huge movements in the United States. And this is how Henry Kissinger became well-known. This slowly led to Reagan's work with Gorbachev and began the downfall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. However, he made other inroads and many other successes in foreign policy and became one of the most successful Secretary of States in the history of the United States. And we remember him now. We also lost former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. As far as appears, she has none, and I will explain why. She was born in 1930 in El Paso, Texas. She grew up on a ranch in Arizona that was so vast, it would take a man on a horse a full day to ride across it. She was given her own responsibilities there and handled them. When she didn't handle them, her father told her so. <laughs> she aspired to be educated though, which not all women at this time did. And she went to Stanford. She was senior class president there. She went on to get her law degree there in 1952. She became editor of the Stanford Law Review, and she was such a good student, she was admired. She graduated third out of the 102 students in her class. However, because of so much prejudice against women in so many jobs, she could not get hired after graduation 
even though she graduated so highly in her class, <gasps> to get a law job, to become a lawyer. She finally took a job where she could get hired, but she was hired working for free. <laughs> Slowly over the next few years, battling having to raise children and having to follow her husband around finding different jobs, she slowly worked her way into the point that she became the Arizona Assistant Attorney General in 1965. Now, this wasn't a greatly admired job at the time, but she began to make it a greatly admired job. Yes! And people began to notice her there. After that, she began to rise quickly with her children older and out of the house and her not having so many family responsibilities. She began to really rise to the top. She was appointed to the state Senate in 1969 and then chosen as Senate Majority Leader among her peers in 1972, something unheard of for women at the time. In 1974, she was elected as a county judge and then appointed to the State Court of Criminal Appeals in 1979. Just two years later, this is how amazing her rise was and how well she was noticed. She was appointed and confirmed in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan as the first female Supreme Court Justice in the 191-year history of the Supreme Court. She retired from the court in 2006. In 2009, she founded the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute for American Democracy. She was a trailblazer for women. Yes. And that is what I mean by peerless. She did so many things that were so unheard of at the time. In many positions she attained, a woman had never been thought of for those positions. She was powerful, but regarded as an independent thinker and a leader in every realm she worked. She was praised and respected. And this is what she said about her own appointment to the Supreme Court. His decision, meaning Reagan's, was as much of a surprise to me as it was to the nation as a whole. But Ronald Reagan knew that his decision wasn't about Sandra Day O'Connor. It was about women everywhere. It was about a nation that was on its way to bridging a chasm between genders that had divided us for way too long. And that is how she felt, and that is how she became a trailblazer. And that is why we remember her today. In this next segment, we highlight another woman who was a trailblazer. Stay with us as we discuss a real legend of music from a world where a woman wasn't really respected at all, and especially black women. But yet she became an American hero and helped make music that united us all. And this person I am talking about is the great American hero, Ella Fitzgerald, otherwise known as the First Lady of Song. The great Ella was born on April 25th, 1917 in Newport News, Virginia. She had it rough in the beginning. Her father was around for only a short period of time and she did have her mother Tempe to rely on. She managed to make it only by doing what she could to make ends meet. She eventually wound up with a stepfather who helped her out a lot, but she eventually had to take on small jobs just to get the family by. And what I mean by small jobs, it was a tough small job. She became a runner for local gamblers. As a young woman, we don't think she really fully knew everything that was going on. She didn't like to talk about it. 
She enjoyed dancing and she enjoyed singing. She also enjoyed playing baseball. Next up the bat. And she would go to Harlem to the Apollo <laughs> Theater when she could as a young woman to take in the various acts appearing there. And one evening in 1932, her mother died from a serious car wreck. And she took it hard. And after staying for her stepfather with just a short period of time, she moved in with her aunt. Her stepfather and her sister shortly died thereafter. And with all these terrible circumstances, she started to perform poorly. She began to have poor grades in school. She began to get into trouble. And then finally, she started skipping school. And eventually, she was sent to reform school. And living there was unbearable. She was beaten frequently. She was mistreated. She eventually escaped one evening. And there she was, 15 years old, orphaned, by herself, and totally alone during what was terrible for everyone, the Great Depression. In 1934, she got lucky. Her name was pulled in a weekly drawing at the Apollo Theater. She won the opportunity to compete in Amateur Night. This was a huge opportunity because the Apollo was so well respected. Ella went to the theater that night with the thoughts of dancing because she thought of herself as a great dancer. However, when she saw the extremely talented Edward sisters who she would be competing against and who she said were the dancingest sisters around, she said she felt she needed to do something else as she had no chance of beating them. On stage, she began to stand there and heard a smattering of booze and the crowd murmuring things like, what's she gonna do? And who is that? And why'd they let that girl in here? Who's that little girl up there? And she asked the band to play Hoagie Carmichael's Judy, a song she was quite familiar with as it was one of her mom's favorites. The audience quickly quieted. By the song's end, they were already demanding more. Encore, calling for things. They had whistles, they had calls. So she turned and she said, what can I do? And (laughs) she told them to play the song that was on the other side of the record. And as they say, the rest is history. She was a relatively shy person off stage, believe it or not. She was always self-conscious about the way she looked. She even doubted how well she could sing for a while, believe it or not. (laughs) Frankly, I can hardly understand that, as amazing as she is. As far as jazz, pop, or non-opera singers in the world, in world history, I consider her and the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, to be the two greatest female singers in history. She once said, I knew I wanted to sing before people for the rest of my life, but yet she was quiet and didn't want to sing sometimes. It just so happened that a great jazz saxophonist, Benny Carter, was in the audience that night at the Apollo and began to help her find ways to sing and find ways to get her name out there. And she began to be fueled by enthusiastic supporters who began to help her. And she looked for talent shows that she could get involved in and compete in. And believe it or not, she won every single one of them that she entered into. And in 1935, she won the chance to perform with Tiny Bradshaw Band at the Harlem Opera House. It was there that Ella first met drummer and band leader Chick Webb, 
Now, I'm not sure how many of you know who Chick Webb is, but he is a legendary drummer in the jazz world and a very highly talented and respected jazz musician. Although her voice impressed him, Chick had already picked out a singer for his band. He offered Ella the chance to audition for it, though, and said, as they were about to perform for Yale, if the kids like her, she stays. <gasps> well, the kids liked her. She was a major success, even though it was a tough crowd. Yeah! And Chick's band hired her to travel with them for $12.50 a week. She made her first recordings around this time in 1936 with the song Love and Kisses. She was now performing at the prestigious Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Shortly afterwards, Ella began singing a rendition of the song, If You Can't Sing It, You Have to Swing It. Yes. During this time, the era of big bands was shifting and the focus was turning more towards a new style called bebop. Ella played with this style, using her voice to literally become another horn in the band. In that song, You Have to Swing It, it was one of the first times she began experimenting with her voice using scat singing and improvisation and vocalization, which she'd kind of heard Louis Armstrong experiment with, but she took it a step further and it made fans go wild for her music. And she now began to put the two together, singing and scatting. In 1938, she recorded my all-time favorite song of hers. And if you haven't heard this song, you've missed it. It's a playful version of the nursery rhyme, a tisket, a tasket. Find it, listen to it. <laughs> if you never hear but one song of Ella's in your whole life, this is the one you need to hear. It is a mastery of the voice. It is the mastery of using your mouth, your tongue, everything about singing. Yeah! The album sold millions of copies, stayed on the charts for 17 weeks, and hit number one. This made Ella super famous, and this is when jazz was at its peak, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. You gotta realize, this was a huge hit, and she had a lot of competition. Ooh. Chick Webb sadly died in 1939. In his absence, she renamed the band Ella Fitzgerald and her famous band, and she took it over. She had a quick marriage that didn't last, as she married a dock worker who she found out later was a criminal and got rid of him. <laughs> she was a woman, she proved, who could stand on her own. You betcha. She began to rise, and she did finally marry in 1946 to bassist Ray Brown, and they adopted a son. Brown was playing in Dizzy Gillespie's band, and I don't know if you know who that is, but Dizzy Gillespie is one of the most famous jazz trumpet players of all time. He could play trumpet and really any kind of music. Ray got her to sign with a new manager who remained with her for her life. This manager was Norman Kranz, and he set up tours and began recording with different famous musicians, one of them being the legendary Louis Armstrong. And this music helped show what a woman can do as well as anyone, and it helped show what a talented black woman could do. Yes. She began to cover the music of other musicians, and she made these albums of different famous musicians' songbooks. These are some of the best albums ever made by a singer. I will assure you of that. If you haven't heard these, you might want to listen to them. She made music from Cole Porter, Johnny Mercer, Irving Berlin, Rodgers and Hammerstein. The albums were wildly popular at the time and are still beloved today. She began appearing on TV shows, The Tonight Show, Bing Crosby Show, The Dean Martin Show, among many others. And according to Ira Gershwin, 
He once said, I never knew how good our songs were until I heard Ella Fitzgerald sing them. And that's how good these songbooks are. That's why you need to listen to them. With all the touring, Ella and Ray's marriage began to strain and they divorced in 1952. And despite the fame, despite all the touring, despite the TV shows, she still faced discrimination (gasps) as she toured with these bands, even with Dizzy Gillespie. They were arrested by the police in Dallas, believe it or not. In the deep south, hotels, restaurants, concert halls wanted to refuse her amenities, wanted to keep her band out of things. But this manager, Mr. Kranz, refused to accept it. He would bust in and tell them, no, you're not going to do this. And he would make them honor what their agreements were and allow all of their musicians and all of their staff to get what was deserved. But there was a situation where Marilyn Monroe, believe it or not, really helped Ella Fitzgerald, and they began to become friends in the early 50s. Until the 1950s, most venues that hired Ella to perform were very small. The reason for this, most did not want an overweight black woman performing there, no matter what her talent was. She once said, I know I make a lot of money at the jazz clubs I play, but I sure wish I could play at one of those fancy places. She had developed a great fan in Marilyn Monroe who had been listening to her records. Marilyn wanted to sing in the movies and her voice coach had recommended her listen to Ella Fitzgerald's records. And at first she was listening to him to help her voice, but then she started to realize, gosh, what a great singer. And she began to turn into a huge fan. And in November, 1954, she got to see Ella perform live in Los Angeles. The two became fast friends. So when Monroe learned that Ella could not sing at the Mocambo, which was a famous LA nightclub, as an example, she decided she was going to do something about it. Yes. Other black female stars had already performed there. It wasn't about race per se, but it was about her being overweight and it made her less glamorous. So Marilyn Monroe approached the owner with a proposition. If he would book Ella, the absolutely beautiful, gorgeous Marilyn Monroe promised to sit at the front of the house every single night to bring in other celebrities and garner publicity for the club. Oh! The club owner, of course, agreed right away and hired Ella in 1955. During Ella's run there, Marilyn Monroe did just what she said she would do. Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland showed up the very first night. However, as it turned out, the celebs became not necessary, not even an issue. In fact, her shows began to sell out and people couldn't even get in. (gasps) The owners even added another week to the contract and they still sold out. This successful engagement shot her through the roof. After that, she said, I never had to play a small jazz club again. But still, because of the color of her skin, some of the big clubs expected her to, for example, use back entrances or side doors or other things that she didn't like. When Marilyn found out about this, she again came to her support. When she saw Ella being ushered to a back entrance, Monroe refused to go into the building until Ella was treated with respect and allowed to enter through the front. Marilyn soon got her way. Soon, no matter where Ella went, she was treated the way she should have been treated. She was allowed to go in wherever she wanted to. Here's an interesting note, though, to history. Ella didn't drink 
or use drugs ever because of her upbringing, because of her background, because of what she saw her mother go through amongst other things with her family life. She never got into drugs or alcohol, thankfully. She would not sing songs even that referenced drug use. Unlike Billie Holiday, one of her contemporaries who was a jazz legend of the time, but whose life ended early due to drugs and alcohol, Ella lived a long life and was always admired for many reasons, this being one of them. This began to hurt her relationship, though, eventually with Marilyn Monroe, who began to become a drug user. Ella wanted no part of it. No. Through the 60s and 70s, Ella toured throughout the world, sometimes doing as many as two shows a day. This took a toll on her health. In 1974, Ella spent a legendary two weeks performing in New York with Frank Sinatra and Count Basie. Still, she had to rest. However, Ella managed to keep going, touring for another five years strong. And she made appearances on TV, starring on that Carol Burnett show, for one thing. Ah. Uh. And... Also making some movie appearances as well. She was a true legend and a true star by this point. She made further appearances with Mel Torme, Dean Martin, and Nat King Cole, just to name a few. Ella was an amazing, legendary singer. She was inducted into the Downbeat Magazine Hall of Fame and received the Kennedy Center Honors for her continuing contributions to the arts. Continuing all the way through, even through the 80s, singing, in 1987, United States President Ronald Reagan awarded Ella Fitzgerald the National Medal of Arts. It was perhaps her most prized moment, Ella felt. The country of France followed just a few years later, presenting her with their Commander of Arts and Letters Award. And while Yale, Dartmouth, and also other universities bestowed Ella with honorary doctorates. She underwent heart surgery in 1986 and then was diagnosed with diabetes. Doctors advised her to completely stop touring. She did not want to, though. And despite failing eyesight and some other health problems, family and friends thought she was done. In fact, they didn't even think she could sing. But she returned to the stage and proved everyone wrong. She made records all the way into the 90s, becoming the only woman ever to record an album in seven different decades from the 30s through the 90s. She had recorded over 200 albums by this point, even after going through much sickness with diabetes through the last years of her life. She managed a few concerts, one of them being a huge spectacle at the Royal Albert Hall in 1990, where she starred with the Count Basie Orchestra. She became sicker after this and was no longer able to perform as much as she did. There was a tribute concert held in her honor in Inglewood, California. In 1991, she gave her final concert at Carnegie Hall. It was her 26th performance there. As her health worsened, she wanted to spend time sitting outside. She wanted to be with her family. On June 15, 1996, Ella Jane Fitzgerald died in her Beverly Hills home. She had overcome discrimination for being a woman, for being black, 
for being overweight and for being poor. Ella, throughout her life, had been a great civil rights activist, and she used her talent to break barriers across the entire country. And she was awarded by the NAACP the Equal Justice Award and the American Black Achievement Award. And she was recruited to help out with targeting segregation in areas to stop it. She also helped to stop segregation in areas where places were marked colored or white seating. She ensured that she was able to receive equal pay and accommodations regardless of her sex and her race throughout the places that she played. If not, she canceled the show. She was an amazing fighter all the way through her life, which is why she was honored the way she was. Yes! No one stood for the things that she stood for in the way that she stood for them, like the great Ella Fitzgerald. She was recognized all across the world, as I mentioned France, but she was also recognized in Australia, where she had a huge fan base, and she was recognized as a civil rights crusader even there. And she, in 1993, established the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation, which had charitable grants for four major categories, academic opportunities for children, music education, basic care needs for the poor, and medical research involving diabetes, heart disease, and vision impairment. Her goals were to give back and help the less fortunate. She supported several nonprofits, including the American Heart Association, the City of Hope, and the Retina Foundation. And there are many other ways in which she supported nonprofits that we may never know about. She was very quiet about the way that she gave money, especially to children's organizations. Ella was a giver. Yes. But despite her humble beginnings of growing up without a father, growing up very poor, having to make ends meet around criminal activity, around the awful area that she grew up in, and the terrible circumstances that she had to face with the deaths of her family. She went on to greatness. Went on to win 13 Grammy Awards, sold over 40 million albums, and had her life celebrated around the world. A wreath was placed at her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. They stopped traffic on all the major freeways through L.A. for her funeral, something they only do for those they absolutely respect and hold in the highest esteem. Her music is housed in the Smithsonian in a special tribute. A jazz festival is held yearly in her honor. Dozens of albums have been recorded in her honor and special tributes have been made to her. The most special one may be recorded by the great Wynton Marsalis entitled Dear Ella with many famous musicians closely associated with her on the album. Another similar album was released in 2007 featuring a host of famous musicians from another era, all honoring her. There are multiple statues of her around the country. The Postal Service honored her with her own stamp in 2007. In 2013, Google honored her with her own doodle on her 96th birthday. The BBC honored her multiple times in the past several years with documentaries and films and tributes. And in 2023, Rolling Stone magazine ranked her as the 45th best singer of all time. I think they got that a little low. 
but it's still an honor. She was a wonderful human being and known for being kind to children and donated heavily and quietly to children's charities. She was the first black woman to receive a Grammy Award. She opened doors for women and black women, particularly across the country, and helped end the type of racism that we saw in the early 20th century by becoming a legend of the voice and getting her name and her face into places everywhere. No one can do what she did. Her voice sounding like an instrument at times and a brilliant jazz singer at others. She was one of a kind. We all miss her, but at least we have her recordings to treasure for always. Hearing the lady of song, the greatest singer possibly of all time. Stay with us as we discuss Christmas. No, probably not in the way you are thinking. We will discuss whether Christmas is here in the way some think or want, or if America still respects Christmas. That is coming up next. is this season we are celebrating? Is it known as Christmas? Christmas! Or the holidays? Or a festive time? Or where are we going with this? We will discuss what it really means here as we explore in a regular feature this ladies could be Hades. Christmas is here again. Or is it? A couple of years ago, President Trump brought up the fact that Christmas was under attack and that you could not say Merry Christmas. Is it still under attack? Can you still say Merry Christmas? Or can you not? Mm -hmm. This is why I'm bringing it up. Not because Trump mentioned it. It is what I see in ads that tells me we have possibly secularized Christmas beyond the point that we cannot use the word Christmas anymore. And perhaps now companies feel they cannot even use Christmas music in ads either. This bothers me. Does it bother you? I think it should. Whether you are Jewish or Christian or whatever religion you are, I think it should bother you. 
because I think that Christmas is a Christian holiday and it should be respected as such. We can still celebrate other holidays. I realize that Hanukkah, Bodhi Day, Kwanzaa, there are other holidays going on and some even celebrate the winter solstice during this time. But there is still Christmas and it should be acknowledged just as much as the other holidays are. Yes. America is 70% or more Christians if you look at the polling. And Christmas should be celebrated properly. What I don't like about the ads I saw is this. They want your money for gifts that you will buy for grandma, your friends, your neighbors. But there's a certain amount of hypocritical culture to the ads. Please give us your money, they say. And they put some tinsel and show some wrapped gifts, a pretty girl and some ugly Christmas sweaters. But there is no Christmas music, no mention of the word Christmas, no sighting of Santa Claus, no Christmas decor of any significance, no real meaning of Christmas, no Christ, nothing beyond just a little secularization of Christmas, just a little something in there to tell you, hey, it's Christmas, give us your money, we want you to spend money on gifts. Well, guess what? I won't spend money with those businesses. I don't care if you want to make the commercials more about this or that or whatever. It's not about a political thing for me. I want you to tell me why I should spend money with your company when you show ads. And when you do something hypocritical like that, you're not telling me much about how your company is run at that point. No. You could still make it totally secular if you want to and put Santa, the reindeer. You could play Jingle Bells or Sleigh Ride. You could just show girls riding on sleighs in the snow or whatever you want to do. You could even show Mary and Jesus. You could play Silent Night. You could have joy to the world. But none of that is in there now. When you literally take Christmas completely out of Christmas, what do you have? You have nothing. We're just commercializing everything and saying, give me your money. I see greed. All I see is, I am greedy. I will show you some pretty girl wearing an ugly Christmas sweater and give me your money. Is that what it's supposed to take for me to give me your money? What about your products? You're not showing me anything. You're just showing a bunch of junk just to make me come in your store. That's not telling me anything. Who's the worst offenders? I don't want to sit here and name off a bunch of companies. I don't really know who's the worst anyway. There's several of them. Target is certainly one of them. They don't play Christmas music in their ads, which I think is offensive. They say nothing about Christmas, but there's a little tinsel. There's a there's a girl dressed up in a sweater or something like that. And in one of their ads, I see a Christmas tree. Woo. <laughs> Are they scared of the Grinches online who hate Christmas and will prosecute them on Facebook or X or whatever for putting Santa or the reindeer or some kind of Christmas song in their ads? (laughs) Or is there something deeper going on here? In any case, when I was a kid, Christmas was normal. There were many religious ads at Christmas. There were many, many ads with Santa, the reindeer, Snoopy, the Grinch, or some other Christmas symbol that didn't have anything to do with religion. But yet it was still Christmas. Frankly, if you want my opinion, I think most are tired of all this political correctness, the annoying nothingness in movies, TV, ads. They want something in their holidays. 
They want something in their lives. The nothingness is leaving a hole that cannot be filled, except by anger, sadness, and an emptiness that unfortunately won't be found in a holiday filled with nothing. Yes! Commercialism is nothing. When will America wake up and realize that we cannot be politically correct all the time? That 1.6% of us on social media cannot constantly rule the lives of rest of us? When will we realize that a tiny portion of the population on social media should not have control over everything we do? When we do, that's when we know that we're going to make some changes. We should not give them control over something especially as important. That's Christmas. And now we talk about Biden's age in what is the confection in our election? Is Biden just frankly too old? <laughs> well, is, is Biden too old? That's a good question. On November the 20th, he celebrated his 81st birthday, the oldest president ever. Yes! His missteps and gaffes, the jokes he's tried to make that I mentioned last week about our nuclear weapons. I do not think our president should remain our president after this term. He is too old. He should drop out of the race. Let's look at previous presidents. Teddy Roosevelt and John Kennedy were the youngest in their lower 40s. You have to be 35 to be president, so you've got to be somewhere around that age. But most of our presidents were between the ages of 46 and 65. Only Reagan, Trump, William Henry Harrison, and Biden have been over 65 at inauguration. So that just shows you what a tiny percentage were in this high number. The vast majority have been between 50 and 62, frankly. We need to seriously look at adding a mental acuity test to the job for anyone running over 70 years old, I think. Would Trump pass it? It's pretty obvious that he would. There's a lot of people who think he's crazy. He may say some crazy things, but he is smart. Yes! Would Biden? I am not sure at this point. 77% of Americans now think Biden is too old, according to polls, or that his mental acuity is not there. And that includes 65% of Democrats, folks. <gasps> and that is a Reuters-Ipsos poll taken in November. This is why there is a serious part of the confection baked into this election that shows me that Biden cannot win at that age, I don't think. Are you going to see him dancing around or playing a saxophone on the campaign trail like Bill Clinton? Are you going to see him making rousing, pointed speeches like Ronald Reagan? Are you going to see him with a thousand points of light like George H.W. Bush? Are you going to see him out there making, you know, speeches standing on a rubble like George Bush? No. No. You're not going to see him doing any of those things. And many may vote against Biden or simply not vote at all because of his age. This is a serious concern for Democrats. If I were a Democrat, I would be looking at another candidate at this point. Yes. Especially when I see younger candidates on both sides who could do the job. Yes! And there is one that is rising out in California. I would be looking at him. But we will see where it goes. The interesting thing that I see at this point is that President Biden is still holding his own and still wants to be president and is still saying he's going to be president and even saying he has to be president. He has to run because Trump is running. <laughs> that's an interesting quote from him this week. Hello, boy. Well, if that's your only reason to run for president because Trump is running, 
And that's not a reason to be president. And that's another reason I think he should drop out of this race. So going forward, do you think the Democrats will keep Biden on the ticket or do you think Biden will simply drop out? It's an interesting thought. And do you think he's too old anyway, even if he does run for president? He'd be 86 years old at the end of the term, almost 90 as president. That's just a strange thought to me. Next, we discuss Haley and DeSantis and their chances in any of the early primaries or the Iowa caucus at this point. Yummy. Do they have a stand in this challenge? We will discuss. Stay with us. nation of liberty and justice. We stand for principles of freedom and for human rights, and we must have a leader who stands against all the evils in this world, such as genocidal calls by Hamas or students here on campus in the United States yes! or the evils of communist fascism that can be spread around the world. Yes. How in the world could we have our nation's best universities sit before us and have their presidents tell us that to call for genocide is okay on their campus and have our president just sit there? I know Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis would not just sit there. They would have done something. They would have called out those presidents. They would have denounced it. They would have denounced these universities. Yes. This is just one of the reasons I think we need new blood in this presidential race. This is why we talk the race, the polls, and the political trolls now. Do Haley or DeSantis have a real chance? If they do, it would only be if they win one of the first primaries or caucus in this race. Iowa goes first on January 15th. With the way these caucuses go, and I explained this in an earlier podcast, I broke down the way a 
caucus goes. With the second choice voting, there is a chance for some voters to jump up to a second place candidate and push him or her to the top. DeSantis has so much going into Iowa, and he, I think, has the best chance to win at this point. He's polling second right now. And some really recent polls have shown him catching up a little to Trump. If he pulls it off there, watch out. The country will begin to take notice of him and will begin to take him seriously as a candidate. I don't think he has a chance in New Hampshire, which is next. I think that's Nikki Haley's or Chris Christie's to lose at least the second place vote too. And I don't think he can win there. He's a Southern candidate for sure. But if Chris Christie or Nikki Haley pulls it off, watch out. They may make the next race interesting. Yeehaw! If Haley loses out though to DeSantis there or to Chris Christie there, that may be the end of her candidacy. But she's been coming on lately and she's been pushing and she may be getting somewhere in New Hampshire. If she wins big there, at least a big second place showing, that might be the end of one of the other candidates, especially Christie, because I think that's his only chance to really show himself. And I think if he does poorly in New Hampshire, he's out. Yes. And if Haley wins second in New Hampshire, a strong second, I think Christie drops out, and then we move on to Nevada for the fight there. If DeSantis wins in Iowa, though, That will change perceptions on these other races going forward, especially in Nevada where he's polling second. I think it could drive one of the others out if then DeSantis wins second in Nevada. What we're looking for here is a strong second place candidate that can then push on through these other primaries and become the anti-Trump, the anti-candidate to Trump. DeSantis is polling double digits in Nevada and Haley is in single digits. So I really don't see her having the chance to win in Nevada. Republicans sued a caucus here. And so that's gonna make this interesting because that's a different format as we talked about. And having this kind of format usually helps the challenger. If this doesn't kick out the third candidate by this point, then we move on to South Carolina, which is Haley's to lose there. She should finish second place in South Carolina. If she doesn't, as she was the governor of South Carolina, it's over for Nikki Haley. If she doesn't come in a very strong second to Trump, it's over. She may even beat Trump if she's had some victories before this point. But Trump is now polling over 50% in South Carolina. And I don't think Nikki Haley can beat him there now. Whoever wins second there, though, stays in it. If DeSantis has at least one strong second by this point, I think he stays in it. If Haley has at least one strong second, she stays in it. Christie's only chance is New Hampshire. If he's not won there, he's out. Then we head to Michigan, where Trump is over 60% and polling, but it's kind of old polling. So we may see DeSantis is showing second place there. Then we caucus in Idaho and Missouri where I don't even have any polling data. So who knows? (laughs) We could see some interesting stuff there. But Trump has been doing well everywhere. And that's what the polling is telling us. Then there's the DC primary, the North Dakota caucus, and I don't see Trump winning in the DC primary. So that could be an interesting one, but that's just a very small number of delegates. Sorry, Charlie. I could see maybe Haley outright winning the DC primary. 
Finally, we get to Super Tuesday, where I think everything hashes out. There's 16 primaries and the American Samoa Caucus. The big ones here are Texas, California, Tennessee, Colorado, and Minnesota. That's where you're going to see fireworks. If Haley or DeSantis has some very strong second place showings or even some wins, watch out. This could be a race to the finish between Haley or DeSantis and Trump. Haley has begun to come on, as I said recently in polling. She's moved up in California. She's moved up in Colorado. DeSantis is still showing pretty strong polling in second place in a lot of places, especially in Texas, which is a big one. And he's showing second place in some other states. But there are a few polls out there now showing Trump at 50 or even 60 plus percent in places, which means no one can seriously beat him. So it's this race to second place to see if you can start showing you're a serious candidate and try to pull off some wins here or there. Yes. If he gets a challenge in any one of these large states, like I mentioned on Super Tuesday, if somebody were to pull off a win in Texas, Ooh. pull off a win in California, for sure, then watch out. Especially, let's say Nikki Haley wins in California, you have got a race. And that's where it will get interesting. Next, we will discuss a holiday movie that many may have forgotten, (laughs) but my family really loves it. It's a classic of the 1980s starring Chevy Chase as we profile him and this film in our newest regular segment, Movies That Protect Us from Political Correctness. Well, there wasn't much political correctness in 1988 when the movie Funny Farm came out. No! And it's filled with comedic and satirical moments about life, living in the city, and living in the country. And it pokes fun at both. As opposed to a lot of Hollywood movies now, which makes living in the city look glamorous and makes all the people there look smart and everyone else look stupid if you live in the suburbs or in the country. (laughs) You will see a different thing with this. It pokes fun at everybody. It spoofs people living in the country. It spoofs people living in the city. It spoofs people living in the suburbs. It spoofs people with high-paying jobs. It spoofs people with low-paying jobs. It spoofs farmers. It spoofs everybody. Everybody's up for it. Basically, the premise of the film is a couple swap city life for life in the country. And part of that couple is Chevy Chase. But their sweet little honeymoon life begins to turn into something they did not expect. And that is where the fun and the outright craziness begins. It's directed by George Roy Hill and stars Madeline Smith Osborne, Kevin Morrison, Joseph Mayer, Mike Starr, Glenn Pummer, Allison Drummond, and of course, the great Chevy Chase, who is absolutely hilarious in this movie. There is some crass humor. It's not necessarily all for kids, but it does give you interesting views of how a city person might look at, let's say, a cow. (laughs) And it's just plain funny and entertaining without throwing in any politics. There is derision within the family, but there's also a moral that is learned by the characters in the film and taught to all of us about what Christmas is all about. In fact, the entire town learns this in this moral. It was once an accepted norm in American values about what Christmas was about, that we care about each other and we learn to get along even with our differences and we give and we take care of our communities even when we come across someone with different cultural values. Yes! This is a movie that everyone under 40 should watch. 
so that you can learn how to adapt to others that you do not understand. It is a great movie for understanding the meanings of relationships as well. Husband to wife, friend to neighbor, close friends who have to move away and have long distance relationships. And in the end, (laughs) you have a relationship with your mailman, possibly. (laughs) And you have to watch the movie to figure out what I mean by that. Look at this movie through a comedic light and have a little fun in this Christmas season. And now, one of my favorite segments and the final one for the day. It is time for one inspirational quote or a big fat political joke. And today we're going to go big fat political joke. (laughs) We have some jokes for you. Uh, Here is a great Christmas joke that I came across this week. It's a new way to look at Christmas or life in general through a rewrite of Twas the Night Before Christmas. It goes like this. Twas the night before Christmas and Santa's a wreck. How to live in this world that's so politically correct. His workers no longer would answer to elves. Vertically challenged, they were calling themselves. And labor conditions at the North Pole were alleged by the Union to stifle the soul. Four reindeer had vanished without much propriety, released to the wilds by the humane society. An equal employment office had made it quite clear that Santa had better not just use reindeer. So Dancer and Donner, Comet and Cupid were replaced with four pigs, and you know that looked stupid. The runners had been removed from his sleigh. The ruts were termed dangerous by the EPA. And people had started to call for the cops when they heard his sled noises on their rooftops. His pipe's secondhand smoke had his workers quite frightened. His suit with a red fur was called unenlightened. And to show you the strangeness of life's ebb and flows, Rudolph was suing over an unauthorized use of his nose. And in Little Old Elf had gone on Fox News in front of the nation, demanding millions and overdue compensation. So half of the reindeer were gone, and so was his wife, who suddenly said she'd had enough of this life. She joined a self-help group, packed and left in the whiz, demanding from now on her title was not Mrs. Claus, but Ms. And as for the gifts, why, he ne'er had a notion that making a choice could cause so much commotion. Nothing of leather, nothing of fur, which meant nothing for him and nothing for her. Nothing it might be construed to pollute, nothing to aim, nothing to shoot, nothing that clamored or made lots of noise, nothing for just girls and nothing for just boys. That claim to be gender specific, nothing that's warlike or non-specific. No candy, no sweets, they were bad for your tooth. Nothing that seemed to tell us the truth. And fairy tales, while not yet forbidden, were like Ken and Barbie, better off hidden. (laughs) For they raised hackles of those psychological who claimed the only good gift was one ecological. No baseball, no football, someone could get hurt. Besides playing sports, expose kids to dirt. Dolls were said to be sexist and should be passe. And Nintendo would rot your entire brain away. 
So Santa just stood there, disheveled, perplexed. He just could not figure out what to do next. Mm-hmm. He tried to be merry, tried to be gay, but you got to be careful with how you use that word today. <laughs> His sack was quite empty, limp to the ground. Nothing fully acceptable was to be found. Something special was needed, a gift that he might give to all without angering the left or angering the right. A gift that would satisfy with no indecision each group of people, each and every religion. Every ethnicity, every hue, everyone, everywhere, even you. So here is that gift. It's price beyond worth. May you and your loved ones enjoy peace on earth. So I hope you enjoyed that. A little bit of humor, but also a lot of truth. And one final joke from the master communicator himself, President Ronald Reagan. (laughs) He was full of so many jokes. And he said, I have left orders to be awakened at any time in case of national emergencies, even and most especially if I'm in a cabinet meeting. (laughs) And that's our show for today. Please let us know what you think by telling us through Facebook. We might. Love it. We might hate it. We're not sure, but we'll appreciate it. (laughs) You can also find us now new information. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Listen Notes, as well as Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Boomplay, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Podchaser. And we so appreciate you listening to us. We also appreciate our editor, Mark. And we also appreciate KB in production. And we thank our announcer, Will J. We love all of them and we love all of you. And we wish you the best of holidays. Wish you happy Hanukkah as this is the season for that now. Yes. And we hope all of you have a wonderful holiday season. And please join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. 